Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. But just think about the transformation that has happened in every other country around the world when you can sell a system and install it the next day and what that means to you, how much fun you can have selling and installing with your digital toolkit on open solar and one-click permitting. That just changes the game, and we have to do this. It's being done everywhere else. Open solar plus solar app equals massive scale, and that is, I believe, the, the, the future. Hey there, solar warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, I just have a quick question before we jump in here. Are you like me, a habitual intro skipper? I bet you are, some of you at least are, and you're used to listening to Suncast and skipping forward. Did you know that I do all of the intros bespoke? Some of the outros are canned, but many of the intros and most of the outros as well are custom made for you. Like, did you know that we have a listener survey that many of you have taken and it's given us so much insight. If you haven't taken it, then you're missing some stuff in the intro and I'd encourage you to listen to them every now and then. But you can go to mysuncast.com forward slash survey. Takes a couple of minutes of your precious time and I'm so grateful if you'd do that. All right, here we go with the show. Hey, yo, welcome back, Solar Warrior. Thank you so much for granting me the most precious resource you control, your time. Speaking of time, how did one of the solar industry's true pioneers take everything he's learned about solar in the last 20 years and make it free and open source to the world? Today, Andrew Birch, co-founder of the first company to deliver online solar designs, tells us what his research suggests is the answer to scaling solar by 30% through the year 2050 to address climate change. Barrier number one, permitting. Barrier number two, how do we get 10 million more people into the industry in the next 10 years? How could this possibly scale? The solution is a complete end-to-end software solution that wraps CRM, proposals, and financing all together. But it's not just software. Andrew brings in service providers who exhibit products, and essentially pulls everything into a single place. Makes that bundle white label to installers, makes it accessible and online and completely free. That's open solar. But there's so much more to Birchie's story. You know, if you love this episode, then you're going to want to check out the rest of our hundreds of episodes at mysuncast.com. Go ahead and join the tribe while you're there so you'll know more about everything else that we're up to, including our exciting upcoming virtual events. All right. Now let's get rolling with today's episode, made possible in part by our partners, Adani Solar and Extensible Energy. Well, if you're familiar with the solar industry at all, and uh, I suppose that many of you are, you probably clicked through here by name recognition alone. And I'm glad that you did because Birchie and I have been trying to schedule an interview for a long, long time. Uh, It's funny how Various moves can uh, separate us by continents and then, uh, and then COVID, of course. But I'm stoked to have a good friend, Andrew Birch, on the show, back on the show technically, because he was one of the keynotes for our Suncast Clean Energy Summit back in April, for those of you who caught that. And if you're unfamiliar, Andrew Birch is, uh, in my view, an icon in the solar industry. He's someone who has been actively working to digitize solar for two decades. He is a strident believer in the inevitability of clean energy to take over the energy landscape. And he has been a pioneer in multiple ways for our industry from his days before Sungevity, his time at of course, Sungevity being one of the very early pioneers in taking a lot of our workflow, work process online. Today we're going to dig in to what he's up to lately in the digitization process. But first and foremost, let me welcome Mr. Andrew Birch back to Suncast. Thanks, Nico. Thanks uh, for the invite. Absolutely. Absolutely. We got great response from the communication that we had with you and Adam as our keynote of the first day of our energy summit. 
you know, you guys just bring such a uh, robust understanding of how the energy landscape works. I'd love to have you help us understand how did you migrate into the energy business? You're Australian. Obviously, Australia has a deep uh, history in, uh, in not only renewables, but energy progress uh, and transformation. When did it sort of come onto the landscape for you? What were you up to before then? And, and how did you sort of migrate over? So I came out of college. You know, I was, my nickname was Captain Planet. And uh, so I was always kind of into <laughs> environmental stuff. And I uh, started off to try to do socially responsible investment, which is what they called it back when I had hair, you know, uh, 25 odd years ago. And um, that led me to helping some of the early clean tech companies in the 90s in raising capital as basically as a sustainability banker and met, you know, folks like you know, Howard Wenger, who you know, obviously has this incredible experience in the industry when he was back at Astro Power, um, helping them, doing some work with them in the 90s. So I got the sort of vision of solar through some of that work and did my my change of career to leave banking and go do a postgrad degree in photovoltaics at the University of New South Wales based on this belief that, you know, solar looked like it was going to be truly transformative and that I could hopefully, you know, contribute something in the industry. Well, the University of New South Wales certainly has among the highest uh, level of credibility and authority on the topic of PV. What did you study for your PhD? I did a master's degree in photovoltaics and I specialized in the economics. So I did a thesis on the economics of solar. Was it always apparent to you that the way not only solar, but energy broadly was being transacted, was going to quickly digitize and was going to change the landscape? Or was that something that you sort of began to understand as you got deeper into it? was very much as getting into it, you realize where the problems, where the, where the, the gremlins lived. Because on paper, you know, as the banker, your first impression is like the, the, the and I'm, you know, before that, for my sins, I was a physics um, undergraduate. So, you know, I came at this with this sense that the highest value of the photon was behind the meter, was in a home. Like if you could generate energy behind the meter, that had the highest value and that there was this abundance of energy with conversion prices collapsing that would make that the hotspot of the energy transformation. And then as a practitioner, when you get into it, I was at BP Solar as their business development manager first for a few years and then started Sungevity. And obviously with Open Solar and the policy work I'm doing, it's, you know, over that entire period, it's basically been identifying the, the, the issues that stop that being the case. Things like the inefficiency of educating customers with truck rolls, uh, things like permitting that create that adds three months of work to a, you know, what should be a very simple transaction that gets access to that, that, that value of the photon. So yeah, it's been a long list of problems that the industry's had, and I've been part of the teams working on that for the whole, through the period. Part of what I've been doing at Suncast for four and a half years is tracing the trend lines of the careers of folks that I genuinely admire in the industry. And something that never surprises me about folks that I meet, like I'll say like yourself, is when I found, find out that they worked at BP. It seems to be, it seems to be the common thread of a ton. I mean, I could list the name now, but I could list, make a list here, but a ton of folks who have gone on to have a really impactful uh, legacy in our industry, notably yourself and Jigger, but there are many others, my friend Corey. And I mean, we've, we've, we could list the fraternity of, of uh, men and women who've come out of BP, but I'm curious as a recent grad uh, from New South Wales, why BP? How'd you get into that role? So I was looking at two, I wanted to learn, I sort of felt like I went to the school to, to learn the science of photovoltaics and the engineering and, the, and to, to really understand the economics, which I kind of ticked the box on, I felt. But I really need to learn the business to see what the business issues before I started something up myself. And BP, you know, perhaps somewhat naively at the time, I felt had the potential to scale solar up in a really big way. I mean, they, you know, they, they um, were going into that period of alternative energy and I was brought on to help them analyze the space to figure out how they would spend, they're looking at spending $10 billion 
of to, to get solar to a dollar or what. And that was very like, okay, I can get involved with that. And hopefully if BP goes and does that, that'll be a good big impact. So that was the theory. The, the reality was, um, you know, BP is a complex and enormous beast and they never did that. The one thing it does for you, whether they did what they promised or not, it does for you what you know, working at Trina did for me. It gives you a macro view of the industry that you otherwise wouldn't have gotten, right? Not only of the economics of how the business works, but the players. Now you know who's doing what and at a company that's multinational, where? Who's doing what, where? And a network begins to form of key leaders and decision makers that in many cases, I would presume is true for you. You begin, you sort of grow with and you see your careers unfold and folks who I know like you who left BP to go fall in on uh, renewable energy by and large are founders or C-suite executives of companies today. And um, so my advice often to folks who are trying to find their way into the industry and they're so tempted to go work at a startup, uh, especially millennials. Um, I, my advice is, no, you really need to understand the construct of the industry. And you can't just get it from reading Gretchen Botkin's The Grid, albeit one of the greatest books on the topic. <laughs> you must go work for uh, a pg and or a Duke or a BP or a Chevron. Go work for someone who really understands traditional power. And that for me is, as I, scale, as I survey the landscape, I see in you and Jigger and many others, this ability to discern what's happening in the power markets as a layer, a filter for you to foresee, foreshadow what's going to happen. So you decided that BP wasn't going the direction you wanted it to go. Uh, frank frankly, um, it wasn't doing it fast enough or for what other reason. How did you meet Danny Kennedy? Uh, it's kind of a funny story. I wrote a paper on how the Australian government was covertly sponsoring and subsidizing the coal industry by writing down assets and selling them public assets off cheap to these privatized um, local monopolies. And I, I wrote that BP didn't want me to publish it because I was working for them and they were probably trying to get some big offshore deal or something. Um, so I had a covert coffee myself with, uh, with Danny Kennedy, who was then running Greenpeace in Asia, Australia. Uh, APAC and uh, he published it on my behalf from a, I think it was a, an anonymous economist or something he called me. And then we just fell in love with each other in, in true romantic fashion. And cause we both had the same sense of humor and, uh, you know, vision for solar. And we were both thinking of starting up a solar company. And I told him I had an idea. He um, was just heading off to California as well uh, with his wife and young kids who so are no longer young anymore. And we started the company, Danny and I, and the, the third co-founder, Alec Gettle, um, who was the only experienced one amongst us in, in entrepreneurial work. So we could spend an entire episode, and I may. Um, I'm thinking of doing, <laughs> by the way. You'll, you'll think this is fun. That won't be today, but I'm thinking of doing, uh, and I'm going to just drop this here for the Solar Warriors listening to let me know if you think it's a good idea. Because I've become friends with a number of you guys who have started companies that aren't around anymore, but were fundamentally game-changing, like Sun Edison and Sungevity. Uh, I'm thinking of doing a whole series on you know these companies and the life and death of these companies. Um, we won't do that here today, but let me know if that's something that you're interested in. Okay, and we'll we'll dig into it. I'm really curious. Sungevity did a lot of things really well. I think did some things before its time. As you survey the landscape now of the Vivens and Sunruns and Blue Ravens and all the sales enablement tools needed. Where do you think you innovated too soon in the cycle with Sungevity? So, you know, the penetration rate in 2007 and even today is still tiny, right? So we're still, we're not a mainstream technology and we sort of had to think more of a mainstream sales approach. You know, if you look at what happened, we, you know, the idea was to use the internet to use online tools and the, the newly emerged data sets of, of imagery that were coming out of Google Earth, which just didn't exist until you know 2006-ish. And the idea was that we could use that to design and sell efficiently to the end customer. Like that would be a very powerful thing relative to truck rolls that cost $300 that you could close, you were closing one in 10 at the time. That's, that's $3,000, which you know is, that's a ton of money. And the theory was this panel price is full that 3,000 is going to become a really big percentage of the sales price. And therefore, if we can bring it online, we can lower the cost of solar substantially and, and you know, have an impact. So that was the theory. And that remains my theory it has been for, you know, for, you know, 13 years since we started, but that was a B2C company. And the bet was, we always believed that the local installer community would, were the right 
vehicle for scaling the physical installation because there isn't a nationwide plumber, as we told everyone who cared to listen back then. You know, there's very hard to get economies of scale on that last mile. But we thought that we could centralize the selling and create a, a, a kind of a brand and a B2C brand that could centralize the process of signing up to go solar and then have a subcontract network to install. And, and that was kind of, we were the only ones to try and do that in a vertically integrated industry, uh, but it wasn't far enough. Like, and I think the, the, the migration now with open solar is to, to, to give that toolkit to the local installers so they can sell and install. Is it a stretch to say the Sungevity was the first to sell solar online? I think that's right. I, you know, I got friends at Solar City who saw us go live and they're like, wow, they did it. We were thinking about doing that. I love it. The lady came onto the screen and said, you know, welcome, uh, enter your address here and see what solar can do for you. And, and you got a lovely online proposal with a picture of your home with panels on it and multiple choice standardization. You know, it was good. It was good stuff. And it was oriented for the homeowner, right? You guys had, were a whole legion business as well um, that was oriented towards giving tools to the homeowner and allowing the homeowner to do this by themselves, right? Yeah. You know, at the time you go online and you, if you Googled solar, you got Mr. Solar and he told you the difference between the inverter 75GXY uh, versus this inverter and the homeowner would be confused. And we came out with ABCD sizes and a picture of the home and how much it would cost and how much you save. Well, there are a lot of things that have happened in the last one year, three years, five years since, since longevity wound down that I want to dig into. One of the biggest problems I know you ran into and that every installer in the United States, of course, at least runs into is that even in that local game, Getting a job permitted, I mean, it's kind of the last mile to being able to truly digitize the entire install process where a homeowner can subscribe to a project and there's nobody at their house until somebody shows up to to install. We still have in the United States places where you need to walk a physical permit into an office and submit it to a human. I perceive, and I think you do as well, that this is one of the great limitations. And I know that it's not like that in Australia. So can you help? me understand what you've learned about the way other markets are are building way faster than uh, the US is and you are fighting through uh, solar app and even through open solar to as you put it have the cost of solar by reducing the number of truck rolls and the the permitting process etc yeah so it's just so the thing to point out it's really hard to take yourself out of your day-to-day experience as a solar installer in the states and i was guilty as charged when we were when i was part of the team at longevity you have to stop and just take a minute of your life and realize that america is a complete anomaly in this three dollars and forty cents average price of solar to end customer compares to a dollar ten in australia and basically under a dollar thirty in every pretty much every other market around the world right now for the same solar panels and it's painful as, a, as an installer because you spend half your time or your team spends half of their resources getting a customer from point of sale through to install through this, juris, this jurisdictional 15,000 cities, each with their own process, all the paperwork, all the truck rolls, the resale when the interpretation of code is different from what you expect because they're a badly trained, non-standardized AHJ. All of that, that's all cost. And what it's doing, I think, is it's stopping solar in america becoming the climate solution that it needs to be and it's stopping the creation of hundreds of thousands of jobs in australia right now there's a standardized process as there is in in every other country around the world where you sell a system you register it that defines the the rule there's a rule set around what defines to code and that is if it's if it's designed to code you get an immediate permit the result of that is less than half the cost super quick sale to install like in days and in Australia, penetration now is 20% of homes. So it's only a little country, 25 million people, but you're at 20%. So 2 million of the 10 million homes now have a photovoltaic system compared to you know 2% in the States. So imagine how many hundreds of thousands of jobs we'll have when we solve this problem in the, in the US. And another version of that is Longevity International, which is a third of our sales, is still thriving as Longevity International in Europe. It's cranking, it's bigger than the US business was. You don't have permitting there. It's got a great team, the same customer-focused online sales model. And it's it's just, it pains me to see what's going on in the States. And that's why I've 
yeah, I'm, I'm a little crazy about it, but I, I just am really passionate that this, this thing can be solved because it's just a paperwork problem. And if we do it, we can halve the cost of solar in one of the biggest energy markets in the world. To that end, you know, you put it as a campaign on LinkedIn for what you've been up to for the last three years, but you've got this little campaign that you and a handful of leaders that are your friends and colleagues in the industry have put together called Solar App. Tell me about Solar App and why it is a solution to some of these problems. So Solar App is, uh, stands APP, so it stands for Automated Permitting Process. So it kind of does what it says on the tin. The product, it's an online portal where, which has been built, is now in the process of getting tested by the first cities in the States. And it allows you as an installer, if your city has signed up to use it, to simply enter the details of the system you're installing. And it takes you through a process, a linear process, where every stage it says yes or no, you've cleared, you've satisf- satisfied the rule base. If you enter that de- enter those details and you've satisfied the code requirement, you are immediately issued with a permit and you can go install it. So just imagine that sales experience. You sell it, you spend you know X number of minutes completing the form, and which will, could be partially completed by any software platform. So super efficient, and you go and install it. We're talking a job that could literally be permitted within minutes. A solar crew could be canvassing a neighborhood, sell and install a job in the same day. Theoretically, yes. And that happens all over the world today. Where? Where does that happen? Besides Hawaii, when Vivint is doing a, uh, a promo video. <laughs> there is no other country I know of who has this permitting problem. Huh. So people get jobs and get projects installed on the same day in Australia. It's theoretically possible. Usually yeah. it's like, you know, it's, it's a week or two because the customer needs, you know. Well, there's a time to rescind. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure that there would be some regulations, regulatory problems in the United States if, with customer protection in that case. Right. Uh, here. That'd be a hell of a nice problem to have though, wouldn't it? <laughs> It'd be a hell of a nice problem to have. It sure would. It sure would. So if we remove the permitting issue and as you suggest, like there's no end to how software could automate that process and make it very fast. And we're already seeing software, which we'll talk a little bit about what you've been working on. We're already seeing software automating the design process, automating the proposal process. Really, the sales function now, today, is, is just worlds different from when I got in the industry, when you got in the industry, and we were selling back in the, in the aughts, in the early teens. With permitting, let's just say like Rocky Mountain Institute is working hard on this, and SIA and, and SIPA are pushing hard on this, and we're successful in the next 12 months of getting solar app approved in 500 jurisdictions in the United States. What is limiting us from the panacea of having the costs? We're at 340 in the US, $1.10 in Australia. We need, even if we brought it down by half, we wouldn't be at the price in Australia. What's still standing in the way? There's this beautiful cycle of cost reduction that comes when you remove that first massive constraint. So as you remove the three-month wait time cancellation rate comes down. That immediately lobs 30-plus percent off the acquisition cost. People think there's an acquisition problem in the States. It's like a there is a there's some challenges around some of the sales techniques and a lack of transparency of pricing and competition in certain markets and in certain ways of selling, like the, the, the door-knocking campaign stuff that you know overinflates prices probably in some regions right now but just fundamentally if you get rid of the if you automate permitting and you, you lob the acquisition cost down you have such a seismic reduction in the cost of solar that that actually increases the conversion rate because selling something for twelve thousand dollars is a lot easier for selling the same thing at twenty thousand dollars and that grows the business and as you get bigger the individual Companies get economies of scale, but then the industry gets economies of scale in wholesale and warehousing and transport and logistics and finance. And that all becomes a self-fulfilling thing that over a period of a few years, what you saw in Australia was this cost just kept on coming down and it's still coming down. And so that that's what I think you see in the States. And I think then the constraint is really how do businesses grow at the 30% per annum number we need the industry to grow at to hit climate goals? And I think you and I talked at the summit about this, but just to, to, to land the math on that, if the industry grows its install rate by 30% per annum every year for the next 30 years, we get to 100% penetration of solar by 2050. How does our business, how do we grow our industry? How do we grow up? Our, and it's a small local installation community that is the solution to this. 
how do those businesses grow at 30% a year? And that's where Open Solar, I think, really, that's where we live in that space. So there's a couple of things that uh, I want to unpack there. The first is the job opportunity. So in the, in, in the zeitgeist in the, of, of media these days, there's all manner of conversation around job loss, job creation. We know well from statistics that the solar industry as one component of clean energy is one of the largest job creators, uh, has been the largest job creator in, at, at times in the United States year over year for the last five years. It seems to me like if we grow at the rate that you are discussing, and we're talking about hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of jobs, there are some infrastructure changes necessary in our industry from a chain, from a from a training perspective, uh, or do you see these as predominantly blue collar installation jobs? Is it going to bring in the type of growth that sustains long-term job uh, opportunities for IT and cybersecurity? Like wh- where do we see the biggest growth of jobs and the types of jobs and, and, and how, what, are, what are the infrastructure needs around that before we get into like how to serve that local installer? So there's, there's two buckets of labor pool that you need. You need education on solar as a solution and then physical installation of solar as a solution. There are a myriad of supply chain beneficiaries as well in logistics and transport and warehousing. There's a small number in finance because on a, on a labor, kind of, you know, actual labor number basis, it's a lot of dollar impact, but less, less labor. So really the two buckets are education and installation. And what you've seen around the world is that those two things are best served by local individuals in their community. Uh, you have not seen the economies of scale that myself included and others have you know forecast in in those 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 areas. So to open solar, like what we what we've realized you know, we learned so much over the last you know couple of decades of doing this. And Adam and I, Adam Pryor is the co-founder of Open Solar and the the real technical brain and genius, I think, behind remote solar design. He, he was the first guy to build it. 2007, we just launched 3D, which is incredible, immersive, like it's just crazy virtual world design experience as part of the free app. So he and I realized that we've learned so much about design and selling online that if we created this app, made it available to those regional installers who are selling and installing solar in their markets, that they already have the customer relationships, they've got the infrastructure, the trusted name. If we give them the digital toolkit, that really only the big companies used to have, and we made it free, that that would be a really powerful thing. That can help businesses grow by at least 30% a year because it just makes things so much more scalable when you have a you know, really tightly integrated CRM to the design tool, digital proposal tools, chat functionality online, you know, email tracking of when customers are opening the proposals, all the sort of sales efficiencies that I don't think you would expect to have as a small business. That's what we're trying to deliver. I mean, is the open solar, which is the new business that you guys have been unveiling recently in the 3D. Uh, it's amazing. You guys, you, you got such great coverage just through social media. It goes to show uh, you know, what building a career in this industry can do for you. But you got such great coverage when you guys released the, the open solar 3D. We'll, we'll put a link to the video, uh, the YouTube video for folks who want to see how this works. Um, it's brilliant the way that you guys have built it. And you're right. Adam is a, an industry founder, uh, or excuse me, a, a pioneer in this technology. Is everything inside of Open Solar a bespoke product that you guys created from scratch? Or are you using, uh, sort of integrating a, a robust suite of tools? We've written every line of code ourselves from scratch. So the, the core toolkit is is 100% Open Solar. The, the interesting thing that is is two things. It's the value service add that really rounds off the package for a small installer. And that's and it's also our revenue model is to plug in other service providers. So we have on the app, for example, near map imagery, which is you know one of our key partners um, who have this amazing historical database of all the, the prior images, you know, every flight planes every six months in the state. So you can see by season, by year, which is super helpful to get a really accurate design. So you avoid change orders and all the stuff we know happens in, in the real world by getting high quality imagery. And they've got an amazing um, digital uh, surface map data set as well for the 3D stuff. So we partner with them, we partner with wholesalers, we're partnering with finance companies, and most importantly, um, to date, we've partnered with the product companies. So, you know, panel manufacturers who have a, a product to sell, they're selling right now via their dealers. They have the ability now to control that messaging with 
you know, digital video content, product collateral embedded in the proposal that they can do themselves. So it saves the installer time, but they get to sort of say, right, this is what we want you to say about our panel. This is the this is the warranty. This is the the productivity um, differentiating themselves that way, which is really great for them. Birch, I love the vision for what you're doing, and I would dig even deeper into just the business model and how Open Solar is working. But it's coming from a proven team with a proven track record, and you have rolled it out globally. I mean, my understanding is you're selling in both Australia and, and the U.S. and other markets now, right? Yeah, that's right. The Australia and the U.S. are the main markets, but we've got 115 countries now. There are users from across the world using it, which is one of the coolest things, I think. Amazing. That, that is super cool. And, and all within a relatively short period of time. But for me, one thing still remains, and you alluded to it with the door knocker segment of, in particular, residential solar, high growth residential solar in the US. I still see as a quandary, in order for us, in my view, in the United States, not globally, uh, to get anywhere close to having the cost of solar down to where we think it realistically should be, somewhere south of $1.50. You've given tools that empower local agency of installers to do a whole lot of things that big companies can do. You have helped create this solar app, which will facilitate the scale of the business and the transactional uh, reduction of transaction time. Yet, we still have a thing in our industry called a red line. And by and large, a lot of sales teams that have broken out from the vivid solar cities of the world, even Sunruns, and gone on their, on their own, uh, have done so on the back of an intermediary portion of our industry that rewards their ability to build big teams and sell at whatever price they want above our stated margin price. So we call that a red line or a baseline price, which is essentially the price that the installer needs to make a living. They put their margin in. And they, let's say that's $1.80 or let's call it two twenty, whatever it is. Now, the sales team can go out and sell it for that three forty a watt. And they're, they're pulling down pure profit, a dollar. I mean, maybe they're using advertising to figure out uh, how to how to find the customers, but there's a huge stack of margin there left in the sales incentive bucket. Do you see that changing anytime soon? And if so, how? Well, I think so the evidence, again, it's useful to look around the world, which is we're all busy and we're in our, our zones and it's hot, you know, but when you look around the world, the evidence is that as the market scale, the sufficient supply of solutions in the market that you get to a place where you're at cost of goods sold plus some reasonable margin, you know, 10, 12%. And, you know, the cost of goods sold and sold is about a, you know, about a dollar to a dollar 10. And hence you end up at about a dollar 20, dollar 30 in most markets. When you have your local community solar contractor, often, you know, installers of other, you know, HVAC, electricity solutions, you know, Sparkies, as we call them, down under, the plumbers, et cetera. When, the, when those businesses, their solar arms start selling, you know, in the community, and there's two competitive quotes on a deal a lot of the time, that keeps the price down. And that, that's what you've seen in every other market. Do you think then this is simply a matter of time and building and empowering tools, not just solar, but many different trades, the ability to compete on providing this service to homeowners? Yeah, it's not. I don't think it's so much the competitive angle. It's, it's just having the scale of the industry, like sufficient number of people in each of the key markets around the country who are, you know, in it for the long haul, providing good service. That word of mouth becomes your your dif- your, your true differentiation because you're putting something on someone's roof. You're supplying with the power system for twenty years. Like relationships matter, trust matters. Those are the the winners in the space, and they if they have the best toolkit and there's enough of them, then the consumers get a great deal, save money, installers make a bit of margin, and everyone can grow. The Suncast Career Summit kicks off on September 1st as a first-of-its-kind virtual event exclusively focused on promoting diversity and inclusiveness in the clean energy industry. This event is for job seekers and hiring managers alike. You can engage with industry leaders, attend workshops tailored to practical advice, learn specific strategies in group and one-to-one settings, and develop a game plan for success. Learn more and recommend a friend at suncastcareersummit.com. Hey, for my commercial solar warriors out there, do you sometimes feel like prospects are treating you like a dollar per watt commodity? Instead of a race to the bottom, why not add more value to your proposals by including DemandX load flexibility software from Extensible Energy. 
You can use intelligent AI software to monitor solar production and shift usage patterns of HVAC and other flexible loads. The result is increased savings on energy charges, demand charges, time of use charges, and that makes you and your proposal stand out from the crowd. Who doesn't want that? You can learn all about Demandex and how you can include load flexibility software as part of your proposals at extensibleenergy.com forward slash suncast. And as a bonus, you'll get free load flexibility analysis, sales training, and info on how you can even white label Demandex for your solar company. So go ahead, stand out with Demandex from Extensible Energy. This episode is also brought to you by Adani Solar USA a fully integrated renewables company from solar sale and module manufacturing to project ownership and operation. Adani has an impressive operating and contracted pipeline of over 14 gigawatts of solar energy projects and recently received the largest solar award ever of eight gigawatts. It's mind blowing. And it includes a single site project of two gigawatts, which itself is tied for the world's largest. No one knows mega scale projects like Adani. If you'd like to work with Adani, go to mysuncast.com forward slash Adani, A-D-A-N-I, and fill out the information request form, and we'll put you in touch with their local team. Your day job right now is open solar. I'd like to get a bit more understanding around how do you, how do you think about getting ready for that second act? I mean, you, you've had, and maybe a third, fourth, because you've had multiple iterations of your work. Did you have a process for starting open solar, starting it somehow differently than Sungevity? Was it you kind of fell into it? What can I learn from that? Yeah, so I think the difference between open solar and Sungevity is that 10 years of making mistakes as an entrepreneur equips you with a whole new arsenal of tools because I came through BP Solar into open solar with with very little management experience. I'd been, you know, in capital markets raising early clean tech companies finance and then a BD manager. So really a sort of specialist, um, but not a, you know, a, a team builder or leader of teams or any of the operational side of things. So so Adam and I came at Open Solar. Still, the common thread was mission. Like we came together and said, "What can we do that can have an impact with what's left of our lives?" And based on everything we've learned so far, and then we realized that what we'd learned in the software component of of the longevity experience was something that could be really, really valuable to installers around the world. And this lovely, just super powerful scaling factor of you know billions of smart devices that can download an app at zero cost like that is just so powerful and the the knowledge that there were hundreds of thousands of contractors who could get into solar businesses or start new solar businesses if they had this kind of technology and toolkit so that was the sort of transformative thing we thought we would we could do but then in terms of business design and life design we really focused in on where we can create the most value with just being very frank the least number of hours in our day you know, at Sungevity, I was working, you know, 14, 15, 16 hour days, every day, every weekend. And all that while trying to raise a family, as I recall. Yeah. Three young children, a wife that somehow managed to do everything without me creating any value at the home or doing very much to help just purely because there's, there's such a big commitment to all the stakeholders in Sungevity to, to, to try desperately hard to make that work. I've learned a lot, you know, value comes from design. There's actually there's a wonderful book, What I Learned in the Rainforest, which has got that lovely line in it. And I've, I've really applied that to my life now. If you're having to work 15 hour days, you haven't designed your business right, most likely, I think. If you're not able to afford the team and the the software and the things that you need to be successful and you're having to do that with man as yourself is telling you something. So you know, I think we've got a nice balance now at Open Solar. We've got we still work pretty time hard, and the time zones are terrible. But we have focused on this piece of the value chain that can have the biggest sort of you know scaled impact on the outcome, the mission that we all care about. You mentioned that your wife and your children essentially sort of coexisted uh, in a, in a different parallel universe almost during the longevity time, and I'd like to know if you'd be willing to explore that a little bit. In particular, from two angles. One, what you just just discussed around what I learned from the Rainforest book that I'm definitely going to check out now, how you might have done it differently. But before that, how 
after this longevity experience, did you begin to reincorporate into the life that your family had created without you? And what was that experience like? Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a pretty heavy topic. It's, um, you know, I think it was very easy from the kid's perspective because I was, you know, fresh new parent ready to play and, you know, I had the time that I'd never had before and I was kind of new and interesting. I think it was much, much harder for my wife, you know, having to deal with this new guy. (laughs) (laughs) She's an amazing human being that, you know, on her own, you know, side in Korea has done lots of really interesting and amazing things. And and as a mother has, you know, created these three gorgeous girls. So having my return to the household is, you know, kind of disruptive in in and of itself. But we navigated that, and I think we've got a much nicer balance now. And and uh, the hope is that Lou will be able to, you know, focus on some of the things she really is passionate about, and she's really into plastics in the environment and uh, trying to make the households uh, make it easier for households to do green initiatives. So she's working on some of that, which is great. Along that line, I have three boys, uh, and one of the things when my youngest, no, my middle son now was very young. A mentor of mine said, and he had been in the Sun Edison sort of run up. He had actually been acquired from a company that got um, sort of rolled into the Sun Edison behemoth. And he had spent 20 years, 17 years at AES before that. And, and he, he said, when I asked him, uh, as we often do, because we're traveling, no family, in a hotel somewhere, what would you do differently? And he said he would do everything he could to be present for the first 12 years of his life rather than to be uh, a provider for them for that 12 years, right? So he made that distinction, which truly sticks with me. And it's guided probably all of my decisions since that day. How do you reflect on that distinction about the need, especially when with young kids, to be the provider? Also the ego need in your 30s and 40s to build something that has a legacy, to give back to investors who've trusted in you, but recognizing that the only real thing you've created that's going to outlive you is is sitting in a high chair at home. Yeah, well, I mean, so part of it is somewhat of a disagreement of what I'd, I'd say to what that to your last point. Like, I think the legacy that you can lead, which is very unique to the professionals who are working in our industry at this exact moment in history, is a legacy of a planet that is livable and an ecosystem that is viable for not just our direct children, but for all, all children and their children. And, you know, if, if you believe in science, then you just like the facts are that we are destroying the environment in which our children will raise, will live and raise their children. And we have a legacy of 3.6 billion years of life that we are in a hair's breadth of geological time destroying to the tune of 50% of species. And like morally, that is wrong. And there's this, you know, solar storage is the only scalable solution that solution that we know of that is economically viable and scalable in this 30-year time frame we have. And we happen to be in our 30s and 40s. We have this experience of, you know, a couple of decades or 10 years or so of depending on you know how long you've been in solar, but that that's the, the point where you can actually dig in and hopefully with this designed you know, everyone's des- if everyone designs their impact in the most impactful way, designs what they design what they're doing in them to be the most impactful. Then I think we can actually change the trajectory, and that motivates me massively. So, and then the challenge is, you know, trying to be a good dad when you're trying to do that. Um, and it's the same for all the other solar professionals out there who are passionate and working. It's not unique to me. I'm sure it's it's uh it's it's just a challenge of our little time and generation, right? One of the things I've noted of folks that I consider to be real, real leaders and inspiring mentors, as you have been to me, is the ability to consistently return to the narrative, to have a guiding principle. I think to be a leader in a company, uh, you need that you need that guiding principle, that foundation upon which other decisions are made. How much of your work history included mentors, and and if if it did. Even if those mentors may have only been your father, grandfather, uh, grandmother, what lessons or takeaways have you been able to extract from those mentors that you pass on to your team? Yeah, that's a great, great question. I think, well, obviously, my parents and my wife and even my kids—you know—those those lessons build up you know, cumulative into the lesson bank. Every you know experience you have, and that's obviously been 
you know, what's created, I think, hope, I hope the principles as well, that and the values that I, I have that are, you know, I think are foundational, like you're respecting the human beings around you and the world you live in. The direct business mentoring, uh, you know, there's been two or three people that have been absolutely pivotal to me in that. And I've been just really, and I'm, I'm sure everyone says this, but just super lucky um, and privileged to have exposure and time with these people. And I'm, I won't name names, but they know who they are. And it's really exciting that they're actually also involved in the Open Solar Project, continuing that mentorship that I had through Sungevity. And, and that's just kind of created all these lessons, these business lessons around user centricity and focusing on the user and the customer and creating a you know a culture and team that has that mission orientation that always knows what the North Star is so that you can be empowered. Like that's, you know, all of that came out of lessons through you know direct mentoring of how to be a good ceo you know to get empowerment everyone's got to know where we're all march what we're marching towards so sort of that culture building piece is is critical to empowerment which is critical to scale because when you go from small startup to a bigger startup you're no longer doing everything yourself so it all sort of wraps up in a bundle based around delivering value to users and yeah i've learned heaps along the way from these amazing people one of the things that i usually try to unpack and it's been a little while since I've done that is hiring. And I thought about this last night as I was getting ready for this interview. I'm curious, given the breadth and depth of experience you have growing a team quickly, but also growing a really good team, what are the two or three key roles that you look to fill early in a company or in a team? And I'm also curious, tagging onto that, what are the two or three key skills that you think are A, transferable or B, essential to thrive in the kinds of businesses that we're working in? It's a hard one to answer on the technical skill level because I think there's so so much diversity in the businesses that are involved in this space. I think that the sort of commonality I'd say on hiring is it remains, the first point is it remains to me the hardest part of, of, of business, period, because you're asked to understand a very complex human being and an even more complex team dynamic in an interview process. It just It's almost impossible. So I think some of the tricks that you get, I think I've learned to get to, to try and navigate that are firstly, trust your instinct because your instinct has also evolved in its very, very complex way to understand how a team dynamic works and what individuals are going to work or not, and really place a lot of emphasis on, on the team dynamic because the skill piece is probably a much smaller part of the importance of success of that team working together to achieve the result you want than actually the team dynamic working where everyone has respect and trust and the skill mix is right to deliver the objective. And then tactically, when you get into the next order down below that, I think you can do things like, you know, try before you buy is a horrible way of saying it. But if you have an opportunity to work with someone as a consultant, that's when you find out, you know, in a few weeks, you know, it's not hours. Hours is tough. Weeks is actually gets really easy quite quickly after a few weeks to know if it's working or not. That's a good option as well. And then, you know, ultimately, as one of my coaches said, you'll get, you know, if you're really good, you get seven out of 10, right? And so you got to be able to, you know, you move quickly on the three that aren't right. You, 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 you rehire. Are there key roles when you're building a team that you feel are the, like the essential roles? And I kind of think of it as a, as a soccer game, right? So a, a football game for our Latin American friends. You can't play a game of football without you know, without someone in, in midfield, you can't just have a wing. You can't play without a keeper. So who is that keeper in that midfield that are first on your team? So I think like two thoughts, the, your ownership structure, like who's in it for the long haul side by side, basically your co-finder group tra tra traditionally, you know, they've got to be people that you would trust your children with. You know, if you go under a bus, like they are true friends, true value, they share all your values and just fundamentally get on great with them. And like between Danny and Alec at Sungevity and then Adam at Open Solar, I mean, three of the nicest people in the whole world. You know, I'm looking after their kids, they're looking after mine. We're sleeping on each other's sofas. We're there's nothing we wouldn't do for each other. And that that is just foundational. And they are, yeah, larger than life human beings that I love. The beneath that, I think it's really about you can't answer specific skills, but I'd say the structure that is kind of out of a a, a business consulting book, but I think works very well is to decide what your objective is for the business. What am I trying to achieve? Does design the strategy that you think is best to deliver that objective, and then you have to you have to get the tactics and the team that can that can execute that strategy. And 
that is a, a talent mapping exercise that is not rocket science, but very few people do. Yeah, I find that a lot of folks uh, begin to fill gaps too early and to hire before they've exhausted their own personal resources in terms of time. And again, uh, before they've optimized any part of the process to know how to hand it off. And with limited resources to, to really deeply understand how you're going to execute that strategy and what the talent needs are. And you're going to come up with 10 things you need, but it's right. Okay. What are the three things I fundamentally have to execute like right to live and, and succeed as a business? And, and that's what you hire towards. You mentioned that one of the drivers for open solar is this effectively labor shortage in order to install hundreds of gigawatts. We need an influx of tens of millions of trained people in the industry. What advice do you give folks within your ecosystem about how to attract people into the industry? What advice might you give for someone who's thinking about transitioning into the industry, how to conceptualize or how to package those transferable skills? So the skills, like thanks to software like OpenSolar, the experience is reduced in value. The skills of the capacity to have empathy with humans and sell and, and educate and um, technically install, I think, are learnable traits. The, I think the way to attract people in is to, to really lean in on mission because people, time and time and again, even though we always talk about our salaries and you, know, you only read about GDP and revenue, like what actually motivates people, what drives decisions is this, am I doing something that's valuable? And businesses big and small, I think, can really leverage that. And I think some of the bigger businesses do a better job than the smaller businesses. But you know, I think small business should really lean in on like we are doing something massively important in the world. And being in this this business right now is is empowering and, and will create so much value for you personally. I know you're big on the solar plus storage revolution. Is there anything beyond that that has you really excited about where clean energy is headed? No. <laughs> no? <laughs> Fair. Tip of spear right just, now. I'm just like, I, you know, I know that there are thousands of really exciting technologies out there, but from even early days of BP, seeing technologies early stage come out, come through R&D, that just the time and the risk profile for a lot of the early stage and the hardware side is, I think, uh, you know, there's a reason there's a QWERTY keyboard. You just get to the point where these are the ones that work at, at scale and they're ingrained, uh, you know, there's these path dependencies that just become the, rea the reality. And, you know, we're seeing, you know, if you look at a lot of the research and what you're seeing come through the funnel and existing technologies at scale of deployment, like solar and, and storage still has a massive learning curve. And people talk about the historic cost reduction. We all talk about the historic cost reduction. But many of us still think that that's going to somehow slow down, but it never does. And that's the beauty of the learning curve. So you're looking, if you just, I, you know, I'm a geek and geek out on this on the model, but if you look at what the price of battery storage goes to 10, 15, 20 years from now on the current learning curve, like you're talking about ultra low cost storage. So we're going to over, right, right now, you know, countries like Britain, Batteries too expensive to do, you know, some of the storage needs that you need for seasonal and, and the, just the terrible weather we get here. But, you know, batteries are going to be so cheap that your, you know, your solar storage combination is going to deliver electricity with massive redundancy in hyperlocal or small mini grid connected systems that is going to be far, far cheaper than any other alternative. Part of your ecosystem encourages those storage vendors module vendors, other third-party participants, as it were, to, to play a key role in open solar. Something that fascinates me is the, is the it's sort of a freemium model that you've set up for open solar. But before I go into my final questions, I wanted to just dig a little bit into the revenue model here. We talked a bit, uh, a little bit ago about how you make money, but why not charge users? And, and how, how do you foresee the current model that you have also scaling is it something that scales into other types of services how does open solar grow on the current revenue model that you have the fundamental concept is we can have a massive impact by making the best software in the world available to all installers everywhere in the world for free that's a sort of like a foundational decision we've made and we think that because we are such a low cost business we can generate you know significant revenue to cover our cost the sorts of services that we've designed into the solution that benefit the, the installer as well. So, you know, you take the exhibit service that we have for hardware companies, you know, battery companies, panel companies, inverter companies, 
it is really valuable to them. And given that there is the, the you know the long tail, the, the the regional smaller installers that sell the most solar in the world in every market around the world, really nice for them to be able to actually control their brand messaging, their product messaging through a digital tool. And you know we're showing in our model that we can charge for that. It's not a ton of money, but it's um really valuable to them and they're happy to pay to control that and it keeps the the products updates completely live whenever the new product comes gets to launch they click on a couple of buttons and all that goes straight out to all the users live spec sheets everything updated are users only able to use products that have been sort of approved for the open solar ecosystem no no, no? It's, it's very much like pro user centric that we we call the installers pro users and that you know, it means they choose what products they're going to sell and they get to huh. choose everything. So we're trying to mimic their life, but in a digital way. It's really interesting because with the data, you can go back to the manufacturer and show the growth of their product in your, in your ecosystem. Yeah, I mean, there's, I think there's a, bit, a, a potential ability if there is an existing relationship between a, a, an installer and a, and a manufacturer for us to use data to help them communicate with each other. For example, be able to tell a manufacturer that, you know, this is in the state of, Victoria, you've got X number of proposals out there. And so you could expect based on historic conversions to see this kind of volume come through. We're very, very careful with data. We never will sell you know, specific data. It's always at the aggregate level, always doing what's right for the installer because they're our you know, core constituent. But the, you know, there's ways that I think we can, we can add more value. On the level of impactful, you mentioned the book what I learned in the rainforest, definitely going to look for that one and link it up for listeners to check, take a look at. What other books have shaped or influenced your leadership style or maybe said a different way? Are there any books that you've gifted uh, the most and why? Yes, yeah, a great question. There's a lot of great books out there on customer experience. I think the you know, they are, as a genre, they're a great place to play around in and try and find ones that are relevant for your, for your business. In terms of growing as a startup and trying to break through the growth challenge, I think Contagious is a book that I still still refer to. Uh, that you know just has a lot of great tricks and stories in there that I think you can kind of relate and hopefully trigger ideas for your own business. Um, and then you know I still think from operations and um, efficiency, I think you know all the the content around the Steve Jobs enigma of simplicity like there's so much in that that i we use every single day at open solar right so you know there's two buttons here how can we get one button like like constantly challenging yourself to simplify to the purest form is in any business got to be got to make sense what habit or consistent practice for you has had the greatest impact on your life i don't think i can claim to have control of my life uh so i don't think i can answer that well i have a a sort of methodology to prioritize, um, which is very hokey. I have a list I keep and I constantly like daily check that list to make sure that the time I'm spending working is on the most important thing. I'm still in a battle with email because it is the destroyer of that principle. And I occasionally get better at managing myself so that I just don't have email manage me, but I usually get sucked back in again. So I give myself like a three out of 10 on that. Was it a list? You keep a list, like a to-do list? Yeah, I just, I've got my, I've got my mega family health yeah. uh, and mission kind of uh-huh. levels. And within them, I have the priorities of the biggest things that I can do right now that have the biggest impact. Is it written down as an Excel sheet or? It's an Excel sheet that is in my, is open. The first thing I open my, when my laptop comes on and that is what governs my time allocated, except for this written email that just (laughs) (laughs) have you listened to and if you haven't you'll probably really geek out on this have you listened to jim collins interview on tim ferris podcast no i haven't no gotcha if you only tee up one podcast to listen to over the weekend listen to the jim collins interview for one he recommended and it's something i couldn't believe i hadn't read but he recommended one of the books that uh, i think ought to be required reading for anyone even considering business Peter Drucker's The Effective Executive. Jim Collins actually wrote the forward for it. So that's one of the things I learned in the Tim Ferriss interview. But the other is how Jim Collins manages his time. And for the last, I think, 20 years, he literally scores his day every day in an Excel spreadsheet by whether or not he achieves the things he's trying to achieve. And they're all like things that he's set out ahead of time, right? These are, there's a list of things where he said, I will do this every day. And he scores himself and on a, he has a rolling month basis. Like, did I write? Did I drink water? Did I go for a walk? Did I hug my children? All of these things. It sits down at the end of the day. 
And if he misses the end of the day, he does it first thing when he wakes up. And it goes back to how data, how important data is as a guiding principle to our lives. And so many of us forget that success leaves clues. But if you aren't finding a way to measure that success, you have no clues, right? If you don't have a way to find those clues, if you don't have a way to measure your impact, then you unwittingly arrive at the midway of your career uh, and have that midlife crisis because <laughs> you just, lo and behold, like you haven't arrived at the place you thought you were going to arrive. That's fascinating. I, I don't measure. It's a great point. Like I, that list as it evolves, looking at how I have done versus my prior list, but I mm. adding some sort of adding a mechanical measurement to forcing yourself to sort of learn from your mistakes is a great, that's a great ad. Archie, so honored to have this time with you. And I know that many folks are going to want to uh, thank you for your time. Is there a place that's appropriate for them to do that? Is there a way for folks to reach out to you if they wanted to ask further questions and probe? Yeah. I mean, so I try to keep a handle on LinkedIn. Um, folks just search me up there and get in touch. That Yeah, that's probably the best. And the website for Open Solar? Yeah, opensolar.com. It's obviously, as we've discussed, a free tool. You can create an mm -hmm. account, start playing around. There's really great help center there that can answer virtually all your questions and a team ready to help where we can. So it's, yeah, we'd, we'd love to help more and more people in the industry and get more, more people into the industry. Well, speaking of help, how can the Suncast audience help? You got thousands of people listening to you right now. Yeah, so I mean, if you are, if you're selling and installing solar, or thinking about doing that, then it just, I really think, take, check out opensolar.com and give us your feedback. You know, I think it, it's, it's a great tool. We've used everything we've learned in a couple of decades of doing this and plugged it into that. And we look forward to feedback and we hope it helps and keep telling us what you need and we'll keep adding it. And then the other thing I'd say is for our US, for your US audience, is start really thinking about how we as an industry can drive solar app to complete coverage across the US. Because I know it's hard for everyone to prioritize this and guilty is charged if you don't think it's possible because you're in the weeds, you can kind of put it to one side and leave it. But just think about the transformation that has happened in every other country around the world when you can sell a system and install it the next day and what that means to how much fun you can have selling and installing with your digital toolkit on open solar and one-click permitting. That just changes the game, and we have to do this. Like it's been, it's being done everywhere else. Open solar plus solar app equals massive scale, and that is, I believe, the the, the future. The final question is always around what you see happening. It's our, what we call a bold prediction. Before I ask that question, do you see an ecosystem where homeowners are discovering, designing, contracting their solar without the input? Or, or interaction with a salesperson at all, the same way that we might have, we might get a product from Amazon today. Yeah, I, I, I don't think so. I think if you think about products and services that require explanation, you know, like I do, you do a lot of research online. You, you self-educate a lot more than we do today, and I think that's what we tried to do with the Open Solar My Energy proposal. Is you can go on there online with the link. The installer gets an, an update saying the customers opened it. So they're aware of their self-education going on and can time their mm -hmm. sales approach, which is nice. But ultimately, the customer is doing more and more self-educating. But ultimately, when you're talking about something that is as complicated as solar is, is getting plugged into your roof, you're going to want to have that conversation to, to know that you've got a trusted person who's going to deliver that service to you and that you understand it. And it may just be a short conversation like it is when I buy a laptop from Apple. Yeah. Um, but I'm still going to have a conversation that says, am I getting the right one here? Is this the right size of, is this, how many gigabytes do I need? Is this the yeah, right one for me? I totally hear you. But even in that scenario, I've purchased multiple products from Apple, including laptops that I didn't ask anyone for their advice because I feel like I had enough education. To be continued, I think I'd like to grapple with you on this one. Yeah. But let's do in today with what we call the bold prediction. What one thing do you see happening in the market, Birchie, that perhaps nobody else is tracking? What's in your crystal ball? 2050, the entire planet is powered by solar energy. The world is 100% electrified. Primary energy is doubled. So that equals a 4x growth in electricity demand. And the whole thing is delivered by solar, which only requires us to grow at 30% per year. The first half of that is dominated in scale by utility scale solar. And the second half of that period is dominated by residential solar, which is a function of battery storage becoming ridiculously cheap. 
Andrew Birch, he's not only a friend and mentor and icon in the solar industry, but he is also co-founder of Open Solar, which we've discussed at length here today. Birchy, it is always an honor to grab time with you and uh, look forward to having you back on Suncast someday very soon. Thanks, Nico. Great to chat. All right, Solar Warrior. Well, that's a wrap, but we are not done. Oh, no. I know that you're probably as saturated as I am. And that was some good, good, good conversation with my friend Birchie. I'm so honored to have you on the show, Andrew. Thank you. And you're welcome back anytime. Well, what did you guys learn today? Or what most excites you about this combo with Birchie? Do you believe in the future the way that he does? What would you change? What would you argue? Sound off on LinkedIn or on Twitter with the hashtag SolarWarrior. And I'll be sure to respond. And I'll flag Birchie as well. If you're eager to keep learning, then you, my fellow Philomath, can find the resources and highlights from this and every discussion, along with the social media links, book recommendations, and more on the blog at mysuncast.com. And hey, while you're there, I really would like to see you check out the unique events that we have coming up, like our Career Summit, uniquely geared towards diversity and inclusion. And hey, next Tuesday, we'll feature our friend Catherine McLean of Dylan Green in a webinar that we hosted together on that very topic. So tune in here Tuesdays and Thursdays to get your weekly dose of sunshine and insights. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle. <laughs>